the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, March 24th, 2022, the 428th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started today, just a little housekeeping, as Sam Harris used to say before he would immediately invite some member of the deep state on to propagandize the American public. But I don't plan on doing that. And as far as I know, none of the members of the deep state are in my orbit. And I would do everything possible to never have one on my podcast. Unless, of course, they were actually going to answer questions. And we know that's never going to happen. So I got an email yesterday from Buzzsprout. I told you all that I switched my podcast platforms and I have switched podcast platforms once again to Acast. So if there's any interruption in the next few days, it is probably due to that and not to being censored for once. Acast just seems like it has more features that I need and will make it easier to do what I do. That's the only reason. But I got an email from them to let me know that Spotify had contacted them and told them they were pulling one of my episodes off of Spotify. And that was my episode from March 9th, 2022. So a little over two weeks ago. And the email said, we found the following episode to be in violation of our content policies and have removed it. Please see what content is prohibited on Spotify for more information. And so I went back and I was like, well, what did I say on March 9th? It turns out it was one of the episodes that was all about Ukrainian biolabs. So the discussion of Ukrainian biolabs apparently is not suitable for the listeners of Spotify. And you can thank Joe Rogan for that. Joe Rogan happily accepted a small amount of censorship on his show. And in doing so, he accepted a large amount of censorship on everyone else's shows. So, hey, thanks, Joe. You did that. Are you a part of a larger plan? Hey, maybe. I'm open to it. Still really enjoy you, but got my doubts. I got a whole lot of doubts. Gotta say. It's actually crazy that they even bothered censoring Joe Rogan, which is why I think the whole thing was kind of a stage show, really. He had on Peter McCullough and Robert Malone and... They told the truth about the coronavirus on Joe Rogan's podcast about a year and a half after he should have had people like them on. And it was basically concurrent with a lot of people giving up the coronavirus narrative in the first place with Omicron out and everyone, you know, getting it. And the focus quickly shifted away from the coronavirus and onto the fact that Joe Rogan needs to be censored. Because the White House says so, and a study from the Brookings Institution says so, and the White House press corps keeps asking about it. There's just this cultural need for more censorship. And so Rogan said, hey, it's okay. Censor me a little bit. Put a warning label on. You need to take some episodes down. No problem. Should I be switching to a free speech platform instead of accepting the censorship? Yeah, but you did pay me $300 million. So here we are. Enough of that, because we've gone through it a few times. 
There was also good news. I have good news as well. I was invited by the good people at my pillow to be a new ad partner. And of course, I said yes, because my pillow is a great American company and Mike Lindell is a great American hero. So you're going to start hearing ads one of these days, and you probably think that what I just did is sort of an ad, and I guess in some way it is. I'm told my promo code is already up. It's reasonable. So you can go buy stuff on my pillow with my promo code if you feel like it. But I'll be telling you this pretty much every day, so you're going to remember. If you need pillows or sheets or towels or slippers or a mattress pad, I got all sorts of things. And there's a couple of different platforms that I might be able to place the podcast on and bring some more ears to it. So all of these things are happening. And I just wanted to let you know. So Joe Biden traveled to Europe today to meet with NATO members and discuss the ongoing dismantling of the global communist state and its assets as a result of Russia's special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. And if you're thinking, well, that sounds like Russian propaganda. That's not what my television told me. The truth is you're watching American deep state, global communist, one world order, world economic forum propaganda on your television in America. When you could simply be getting Russian news or news from around the world or actual news from America, actual news from Ukraine, individual independent journalists reporting to the world about what's happening. And then you might have a more accurate picture rather than watching video game footage and being told that the Ukrainians are just blasting Russian planes out of the sky. And we are getting to the point where the deep state, the global communist state, are experiencing a prolonged period of extreme panic. This is from CNBC today. BlackRock's Larry Fink, who oversees $10 trillion, says Russia-Ukraine war is ending globalization. Well, how could that be so? I thought Vladimir Putin was trying to wipe out all of Ukraine's citizens and then take over all of Europe. At least that's what the television said. Larry Fink, CEO and chairman of the world's biggest asset manager, BlackRock, said Russia's invasion of Ukraine has upended the world order that had been in place since the end of the Cold War. Ha! <laughs> That's exactly what we're always talking about. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades, Fink said in his 2022 letter to shareholders. It has left many communities and people feeling isolated and looking inward. I believe this has exacerbated the polarization and extremist behavior we are seeing across society today. And yes, the downfall of globalism is probably increasing polarization and extremist behavior, most particularly with how one huge portion of our population now supports Nazism and that's coupled with a growth in the collective understanding of how much Nazism is left in the world, particularly in Ukraine, as we continue to arm and fund actual Nazis and foreign mercenaries. But it's not U.S. troops. It's not U.S. troops, not officially, at least. It's foreign mercenaries who some of them are for sure from the U.S., but it's it's different. Don't you understand? Fink's letter came a month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with Moscow's forces bombarding cities across the country and killing civilians unable to escape. The U.S. and its allies have imposed unprecedented sanctions on Russia and provided military assistance to Ukraine. What a very honest paragraph that was. I'm joking. You can't tell because I wasn't using a sarcastic voice. Fink, whose firm oversees more than $10 trillion, said nations and governments have come together and launched an economic war against Russia. He said BlackRock has also taken steps to suspend the purchase of any Russian securities 
in its active or index portfolios. Over the past few weeks, I've spoken to countless stakeholders, including our clients and employees, who are all looking to understand what could be done to prevent capital from being deployed to Russia, Fink said. Back in the early 1990s, when the world emerged from the Cold War, Russia was welcomed into the global financial system and given access to global capital markets, Fink wrote. The expansion of globalization accelerated international trade, grew global capital markets, and increased economic growth, he said. It was right then, 34 years ago, when BlackRock was founded and the firm benefited immensely from the rise of globalization and growth of the capital markets, which fueled the need for technology-driven asset management, Fink said. Man, what a coincidence. They popped up just at the right time. I remain a long-term believer in the benefits of globalization and the power of global capital markets. Access to global capital enables companies to fund growth, countries to increase economic development, and more people to experience financial well-being, Fink said. The CEO said BlackRock is committed to monitoring the direct and indirect impacts of the crisis and aim to understand how to navigate this new investment environment. The money we manage belongs to our clients, and to serve them, we work to understand how changes in the world will impact their investment outcomes, Fink said. And a more accurate version of that, of course, would be, hey, we basically own almost everything, and we decide what world events will be so that we can make more money because we control everything. And as we make more money, we control more things which also means that we get to control more events. But every now and then, something happens, and the whole idea of globalization just begins to disappear. But hey, good luck, Larry. I'm sure you're going to get out of this on the other side just fine. Now, for some more big-picture globalist ideas on what's going on in Ukraine, Project Syndicate, the mouthpiece of George Soros and global communists everywhere, had this piece yesterday. What is the West's objective in Ukraine? We know what Russian President Vladimir Putin wants in Ukraine, to wipe the country off the map. We also know what Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky wants, to keep Ukraine alive as a democratic state. The question is what the West wants. What is its strategic goal? So far, the West's objectives have been framed in the negative, to avoid being drawn into war with Russia, while still doing whatever possible to help Ukrainians. That has meant saying no to Zelensky when he asks for a NATO-enforced no-fly zone. But the West's war strategy cannot be built on what it will not do. NATO and its allies must define a positive objective. Now, that is a pretty silly framing of things. Okay, the goal for the United States and for the West is not to avoid being drawn into war with Russia. The goal is to economically crush the Russian people in the hopes that Vladimir Putin will back down before destroying all of the global communist assets in Ukraine and uncovering all of the rampant fraud and criminality that's happening there. And it turns out they're getting really far down that path to the point where The Russian Ministry of Defense is now, by name, calling out Metabiota and Hunter Biden specifically for their involvement with Defense Threat Reduction Agency programs at Ukrainian biolabs. Now, outlets like Project Syndicate and our mainstream media outlets in America will continue pushing for World War Three in order to somehow stop Vladimir Putin from dismantling the globalist system. And beyond that, it's hard to see what they mean when they say that there should be a positive program. More should be done. Well, the only other thing that can be done, considering what little leverage the West and America actually have in this situation, is to go to a full scale war. And that is what they're all pushing for. At the beginning of the invasion, when many predicted a quick Russian victory, the West could stick to virtue signaling, congratulating Zelensky and his government on their courage while discreetly preparing to evacuate them to exile. 
Zelensky refused the offer. That's the narrative, by the way. There's no proof that that's true, like that Zelensky doesn't need a ride. That whole quote, there's no proof that that was ever actually said. Zelensky refused the offer. And now that Ukrainians have shown what they can do, NATO is pouring anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles into the country and sharing military intelligence with Ukrainian commanders. You got that? Ukraine's army is filled with Nazis. And that wasn't enough because Putin is dismantling all of that and destroying their military assets. And that is just true. That is factual information on the ground in Ukraine. It's not some fake story about a maternity hospital being bombed or a kindergarten being bombed or the use of cluster bombs. All of that is coming directly from Ukraine and Ukrainian Nazis and foreign mercenaries that are there fighting alongside Ukrainian Nazis. This is not about that the Ukrainian people stood up for themselves. Vladimir Zelensky, the comedic actor, went and armed 10,000 citizens. Come get a gun and go out there and shoot at Russian tanks. That was a feel-good story from Western media, and it didn't mean anything. And I am still confused about how the West in general, the United States and NATO think that they can just arm Nazis and foreign mercenaries in Ukraine. And that's just going to be fine. That's within the rules as they are currently viewing them. The West has entered a proxy war and in proxy wars, the proxy defines the objectives. When proxies do well, it is tempting to start envisaging more ambitious objectives from forcing the opponent into a humiliating stalemate to affecting regime change. And every article right now is pointing this out. These are the fallback positions. Originally, Vladimir Putin was never going to go in because our sanctions were going to be so strong. And then they change it. Everybody expected Russia to just win immediately. And the Ukrainian fighters, oh, they're sticking up for their country. Now it's, they want to play to a stalemate, a humiliating stalemate. Oh gosh, Putin's going to be so humiliated. He accomplishes all his objectives, protects the separatist regions, and goes home with Ukraine as a neutral nation. Not in NATO, not in the European Union. What a humiliating stalemate that is. He achieved all his objectives, and the media can call it a humiliating stalemate to make it seem like something the West did was actually effective in any way, except in ruining people's lives. They have been very, very effective at that. Russian citizens, yes. American citizens, yes. European citizens, for sure. And they talk about achieving regime change in Russia. That's crazy. It's crazy. I talk a lot about Monty Python's Holy Grail and the Black Knight just getting limb after limb chopped off. No arms, no legs. I'll bite you to death. That is what is happening right now with the media. They are figuring out which of their weakest possible fallback positions they can still use to somehow express confidence. And they know people are going to believe them because they know how dumb their supporters are. And that is one of the most insulting things, by the way. I was thinking about this the other day. It must be so, so insulting. To be a CNN or MSNBC viewer, for instance, or a New York Times reader or a Washington Post reader or the L.A. Times. Man, the L.A. Times is just garbage now. I mean, it probably always was. Fair enough. But wow, just pure propaganda. It's insane. But think of all the things they keep telling their readers and viewers to think and believe and support. It's just stuff that's provably false with two seconds of research. It's stuff that's so incoherent that it falls apart as you listen. Like, wait a second, that can't be true. But they still know that they get a certain amount of support by all those people who are still addicted to legacy social media, addicted to virtue signaling, all the people who believe that they can continue to rise within the party of false decorum. If they keep repeating all the slogans, they'll do whatever they're told. They'll be the most compliant because compliance is how you become successful in a communist system. But sure, regime change in Russia is a very realistic goal. 
Yet this raises the risk of strategic hubris. We risk forgetting that Russians have long experience enduring economic hardship. They can absorb a great deal of economic punishment before rising against the regime. It's also hubristic to predict that Putin's inner circle will rise up and dethrone him. Isn't that interesting? Right after saying we should be aimed at all of these things, he immediately says, well, that's a little that's a little bit of hubris there. Maybe we should understand that we're not going to get those things. And now we get to the paragraph of every propaganda article where they give the real scare to the readers before they fix it all up for them. It is far too early to conclude that Putin is losing the war. He has already shifted to more destructive and effective tactics, with the hideous destruction of Mariupol and Kharkiv indicating what may be in store for Kiev. And once again, of course, this is completely improperly framed. Ukrainian Nazis are trying to maintain control over Mariupol right now, and they are getting destroyed. The Russian army has requested their surrender in service of a ceasefire. But as you can imagine, the comedic actor is probably arming yet more citizens who will go and fight off the Russian army as they've been doing for apparently weeks now. Remember, it was over three weeks ago that our media told us that Kiev was going to be sacked that night. Friday night, three weeks from tomorrow, three weeks ago from tomorrow. You know what I meant? Kiev was supposed to be sacked. They were going to take Kiev and they were going to hunt down the comedic actor and they were going to kill him. The TV told us that none of it happened, but still, this is what may be in store for Kiev. Neither the West nor its proxy are in any position to announce regime change as the strategic goal, which would risk provoking Putin into pursuing an even more violent and dangerous escalation. Yeah, Putin probably has no idea that American politicians are talking about regime change and that American media is talking about regime change and that the global communists have wanted regime change in Russia for at least a decade, but probably much longer. He's probably clueless to all of that. Or maybe he would have been if Joe Biden hadn't given the West's cumulative intelligence over to the CCP before she handed it over to Vladimir Putin. One of the funniest things about this propaganda is it still carries this pretense of elitism and knowledge like, yes, the Russian forces are making gains in Ukraine, but don't worry, guys, we got this. We're still the smart ones. Vladimir Putin, man, he's crazy. Remember when we told you he was crazy? Remember when we were pretending he was a different guy entirely? I mean, first he was a cold-blooded expert KGB officer who could dominate the world with his mind. And now he's just a crazy person who's incompetent and running a terrible war that he's probably going to lose. Oh, no, wait, that was that was like two and a half weeks ago when Kiev didn't get sacked. Oh, they stopped them on the trails, the tanks. They couldn't keep moving because Ukrainian citizens with their 10,000 guns were preventing the Russian army from advancing. Totally what happened. The West has been congratulating itself on the severity of the sanctions regime, but sanctions are weapons that hit both sides. Yeah, that's true. That's actually the only honest sentence in this article so far. The West has been congratulating itself by implementing a plan that also hurts the West. Gosh, so competent our Western leaders, Joe Biden, NATO, the EU, Emmanuel Macron. Every Western leader knows that higher gasoline prices mean political trouble back home, especially in an election year, except when the elections aren't real. That's the part they always leave out. Political trouble in an election year? Ha, no, you can just steal the elections and everybody knows it. If the West cuts back further on Russian energy imports, or if the Russians turn off the tap themselves, a recession or even depression will loom, 
And that's not part of the Great Reset plan. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, this is a perfect route into recession and depression and the collapse of the American dollar, which are all goals of the Great Reset agenda. They're just not going quite as planned. And just as an aside, there was a real interesting piece of news yesterday. Vladimir Putin announced that he would only be selling Russian oil and gas in rubles. So he is removing himself from the petrodollar system and saying, hey, if you want Russian oil and gas, you're going to pay for it in Russian currency. And this is probably one of many things that has the heads of central bankers exploding everywhere. Western leaders may be concerned about the likely long-term economic impact of sanctions, but they also know that focusing on their own economies and hence their own political futures at the expense of the Ukrainians would look disgraceful and not just to the Ukrainians. At a time when war has roused fury in Western electorates on an unprecedented scale. <laughs> yeah. Because of an unprecedented scale of propaganda and the control of thought and communication and information. Never before has the entire world been sold on the same war at the same time for the same reasons in each different country. We just have to save Ukraine because Ukraine is so important. They are a free democracy. We need to protect our democracy. Never before have we gotten so much constant conversation battering into people's heads. Ukraine is the good guy. They are the smaller country. They're being attacked by a larger country. We must support them. And that's why we must work alongside these Nazis. And yes, we're lying about the biolabs thing and we're lying about Putin's intentions. But that's just so everyone will believe us on an unprecedented scale. Back to the article. At a time when war has roused fury in Western electorates on an unprecedented scale, saving Western economies by sacrificing the Ukrainians is poor politics and bad strategy. If a Russian victory can still be prevented, the West will need to step up its assistance to the Ukrainian military to force Putin into a bloody stalemate followed by a negotiated settlement that leaves at least part of Ukraine intact and in the Zelensky government's hands. Got that last part? That's important. They can't have another president there. They can't have free and fair elections. They got to keep the comedic actor in power. And now it's a bloody stalemate, by the way, not a humiliating one. They're basically just playing for a tie at this point. They're hoping if they beg right, Putin might just stop. Even here, the West needs to plan for the worst, not hope for the best. The worst would be the fall of the Zelensky government after a long siege and bombardment of Kyiv, providing the Ukrainians with anti-aircraft, anti-missile and anti-artillery capabilities is essential to break the siege. But if these fail to hold the Russians back, the West will have to decide whether it can stand by and watch the presidential palace being bombed and a democratically elected government being destroyed. The fall of the Zelensky government would give Putin the victory he so desperately needs. It would allow him to wipe out Ukraine as a sovereign state and to begin the Russification of a newly conquered people. Now that, my friends, is an incredible reframing of what's going on here. Putin is going to bomb the presidential palace, flatten Kiev, take Zelensky out of power, wipe out Ukraine as a sovereign state, and then russify the newly conquered people, many of whom are already Russian. It's strange, isn't it, that they're still proposing all of this as Putin's ultimate goal when he has specifically laid out terms, negotiated terms for a peace agreement? Leave Ukraine out of NATO and the EU. Leave the separatist regions as independent states and Crimea becomes part of Russia. Those are the terms. Those are peaceful terms. If you put those terms forward and say, if you accept these terms, we'll stop our military advancement in your country. Then that means he doesn't want 
all of these things. And all of those things could be easily given to him. The separatist regions have been enduring a civil war. They don't want to be part of Ukraine and Ukraine wants to destroy all the people there. Specifically, the Ukrainian Nazis want to destroy all those people there. Crimea has been in Russian hands for nearly a decade now. And Ukraine's already not in NATO and the EU. It seems more and more like the goal the West is actually after, despite what they're saying, is a World War III that will destabilize the entire planet, destabilize the world's economies, and usher in the Great Reset. And then they can move on to regime change in Russia. That seems to be the goal. If they cared at all about saving Ukrainian lives, they would be negotiating a peace settlement on terms that Putin would accept. But it's not about saving Ukrainian lives, and it's not about preserving a free and fair democracy, because they don't have that already. Ukraine is one of the most corrupt places on the planet. This plausible scenario should give Western leaders strategic and moral clarity. The West's strategic objective in this war ought to be to preserve the Zelensky government. By saving the government, the West can save Ukraine. Any Russian effort to finish off the Zelensky government should be the West's red line, the moment at which it sends a message to Putin that if he does not stop, it will respond with force. Western political leaders have an opportunity to decide on this strategic message at this week's NATO summit. If they can reach a consensus, it will then be up to the alliance's military leadership to draw up tactical plans for delivering the message loud and clear. Now, remember what I was talking about yesterday in light of that last paragraph. They're not concerned about what the American people want America to do. They're not concerned about what the British people want from their leadership or the French people from theirs or the Polish people who are actually right next to Ukraine and affected what those people want their leadership to do. There's no concern of that at all. They're talking about the leaders from these countries deciding what NATO should do as an international body. It's got nothing to do with what the people of America or the UK or France or Poland want. It's whatever's good for that global body that represents the global communist world order that they are trying to thrust upon humanity right now. And it could not be clearer. They're talking about NATO military leadership drawing up plans to attack Vladimir Putin in a non-NATO country starting World War III. That is what they are talking about in no uncertain terms. They always come right out and say exactly what they're going to do. They just say it after they have already emotionalized everything and made people believe that it is their moral obligation to side with the agenda of the global communists. You are meant to believe after reading this that Russia is demolishing all of Ukraine and targeting Ukrainian citizens to kill them so that he can take everything over. And once you understand how horrible and horrifying that is, well, then you'll go along with whatever they say, like, hey, we've got NATO, I guess they have a military that'll make it seem like it's all for the international good. People will accept that. So let's draw up plans to attack Russia inside a non-NATO country and start World War III. Smart, very smart. Now, let's talk a little bit more about what the global communists have going on in Ukraine. This is from last night, Just the News. Uranium, oil, and technology. How Russia got stronger as Biden's and Clinton's got richer. In the early days of Russia's war on Ukraine, President Joe Biden boldly declared he was ready to seize ill-begotten gains of the region's oligarchs. But in the years before Moscow twice invaded Ukraine, Democrats enriched themselves politically and personally from such oligarchs and businesses in the region while empowering Vladimir Putin with energy and technology deals that still haunt America today. And isn't that funny? Our 
terrible and corrupt leaders over the past few decades have made all these deals to enrich themselves. And it turns out that those deals still haunt America today. So whose benefit were they working toward when they were making all of these deals? Our best-selling book, Fallout, Nuclear Bribes, Russian Spies, and Washington Lies that Enriched the Clinton and Biden Dynasties, chronicled how a failed reset in U.S.-Russia relations led by Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton relied on an appeasement strategy that ultimately backfired with Russia. Putin's spoils were measured in billions of dollars in uranium contracts with U.S. utilities, expanded oil imports, and transfers of sensitive technologies. The American dynasties counted their victories in millions of dollars in donations to the Clinton Foundation, speech fees to Bill Clinton, and lucrative board seats and consulting deals for Hunter Biden. The appeasement policy began in February 2009. Russia had invaded its neighbor and former client state, Georgia, six months earlier. The lame duck George W. Bush administration planned to put missile defense structures in Eastern Europe to deter Russian aggression against its neighbors. Or alternatively, you could see that as Western aggression against Russia in states that were meant to be neutral. They were putting weapon systems right on Russia's borders and in the seas around Russia. That is the Russian perspective, and it gives a entirely different tone to what the situation there actually is. But one of the Obama-Biden administration's first foreign policy maneuvers was to cancel that plan via a secret letter to Putin's placeholder, Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. Why? U.S. leaders apparently wanted to make deals with Russia and giant missile silos in Putin's backyard were a non-starter for Moscow. Hard to imagine. But the canceled missile defense in Eastern Europe was only the beginning in a long line of concessions to Russia that not only emboldened Putin, but advanced Russian military capabilities in ways that are now having deadly consequences for Ukrainian civilians, think hypersonic missiles, while threatening the global economy. And all of that is a bit of an overstatement. The last few years have seen a dangerous drift in relations between Russia and the members of our alliance, Biden said at the Munich Security Conference on February 7th, 2009. It is time to paraphrase President Obama. It's time to press the reset button and to revisit the many areas where we can and should be working together with Russia. Biden thus gave voice to what became the Russian reset policy embodied a month later when Clinton famously pushed a literal red reset button with her Russian counterpart. By 2010, the Obama-Biden-Clinton-Russian reset was in full swing. The administration put forth a mutual nuclear disarmament treaty known as New Start, which, while noble in its declared intentions, risked weakening a compliant partner such as the United States while strengthening a Russia not constrained by the rules. Another deal that Obama, Biden and Clinton gave the Russians was called the one, two, three agreement, which allowed state owned Russian entities like nuclear behemoth Rosatom to sell nuclear materials directly to U.S. utility companies. This deal continues to pay huge dividends to the Obama Foundation's top donor, Chicago based Exelon Corporation. And President Biden has allowed that deal to survive even during the Ukraine war, exempting nuclear fuel sales to U.S. utilities from his recent sanctions targeting Russian energy imports. Oh, there's an Obama Foundation. Ha! That's so great. He must be doing so much good in the world, just like the Clinton Foundation, just like the Open Society Foundation, for that matter. Meanwhile, the U.S.-driven 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal and other so-called denuclearization efforts with Libya and North Korea, effectively sent hundreds of thousands of tons of uranium to Russia for enrichment, a huge cash and energy windfall for Putin. On top of these nuclear handouts, the Obama-Biden-Clinton team gave Russia one of the biggest prizes of all, Uranium One. Before the Russian takeover, Uranium One was a Canadian company that mined uranium around the world. It had assets on at least three continents, Eurasia, Africa, and North America. Its assets in Wyoming, Utah, and other states constituted approximately 20% 
of U.S. uranium capacity and meant the Obama-Biden Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States would have to sign off on the deal. They could have said no, but the deal was approved. Investors in the deal had funneled $145 million into Secretary Clinton's family foundation. Its approval helped to give Russia a near monopoly on global uranium production. Man, $145 million is a lot of money. But hey, I'm sure it was well spent. So Russia has a near monopoly on global uranium production? I wonder if that has anything to do with the global communists lack of emphasis on nuclear energy production as part of the Green New Deal. Ah, probably not. After investigative reporter and author Peter Schweitzer broke the Uranium One story in 2015, a State Department undersecretary, Jose Fernandez, took the blame. Fernandez later landed a very rewarding position at the Clinton-connected Center for American Progress. Fernandez has now come back through the revolving door and is a top official in the Biden State Department. But Clinton's State Department was not the only Obama-Biden department that extended an advantage to Putin. Eric Holder's Department of Justice swept Russian crimes under the rug, not wanting to disrupt the Russian reset. So the Russian spy ring, known as the Illegals Program, which had penetrated the highest levels of American politics and finance, just went away. Biden said he did not want to create a flap. Other crimes committed by Putin's agents were downplayed as well. William Campbell, an American intelligence operative turned whistleblower, exposed multiple Russian bribery, kickbacks and money laundering conspiracies, all targeting the American nuclear industry. But Campbell was handcuffed by the Justice Department. His FBI handlers told him it was due to, quote, politics. When Obama's DOJ finally got around to indicting Putin's nuclear agents for bribery, kickbacks and money laundering, they were given slap on the wrist sentences announced just before the holidays. Oh, that's incredible, isn't it? They released the information right before the holidays when everyone stops paying attention and they give them really light sentences. It's almost like those people were doing something that the Obama-Biden-Clinton contingent didn't think was all that bad. Perhaps the worst of all the Obama-Biden-Clinton giveaways to Putin was known as the Skolkovo Initiative. Skolkovo in suburban Moscow was the site of Russia's attempt to create its own Silicon Valley. The Clinton State Department heavily promoted the effort. As it happens, Clinton's big tech donors comprised 17 of the 28 American partners in Skolkovo. <laughs> Man, that's shocking. In reality, Skolkovo was a cyber warfare tech hub and a thinly veiled cover for corporate espionage and military buildup. A 2012 U.S. Army report put it this way. Skolkovo is arguably an overt alternative to clandestine industrial espionage with the additional distinction that it can achieve such a transfer on a much larger scale and more efficiently. Skolkovo has, in fact, been involved in defense-related activities since December 2011, when it approved the first weapons-related project, the development of a hypersonic cruise missile engine. So Obama, Biden, and Clinton helped Russia secure innovative technology and weaponry, including hypersonic missiles that are now according to the U.S. Air Force, more advanced than America's similar weapons. The Russian missiles have now allegedly been used in the assault on Ukraine. By 2013, Putin had taken Americans to the cleaners. He got massive energy supplies that he now uses as a strategic weapon. He got toothless disarmament treaties that history suggests he will not abide by. He compromised American utility companies, getting them hooked on his cheap nuclear fuel supplies. He got his spies freed and sent home to a hero's welcome in Moscow. He got advanced cyber and military technology, and not least, he compromised key figures in America's political class. Now, think about this in terms of the leverage that we can see the West having the ability to exert on Russia right now. It turns out they have virtually no leverage. The only thing they can do is try to gin up support for World War Three and then attack Russia in Ukraine with a multinational community. And they are still pushing for that conflict, even though Russia is forming new alliances that 
do not want the West involved in this conflict at all. Now, when you look back on these deals, you have to either think that Obama, Biden, Clinton, and the people around them are the worst negotiators of all time, which they may well be. But it also suggests that they didn't have any leverage over Russia then either. And that also makes some sense in considering that the first move in response to this Russian special military operation was to impose economic sanctions that would destroy the lives of Russian civilians and American civilians in the process. That's the best they could do. They have no leverage because our politicians are incompetent and narcissists and all of them are corrupt. What did Americans get in return? Not much. Here's a simple test. Has your utility bill gotten cheaper since 2009? But Obama, Clinton and Biden got a lot. As just one example, before Obama even left office in 2017, he set up the Obama Foundation. One of his very first donors was Exelon Corporation which had received billions in cheap Russian nuclear fuel sales thanks to the 123 agreement. Exelon, which was known as the president's utility, pledged a staggering $10 million to Obama's foundation before he was even out of office. Biden's family and its partners got hooked up with the former mayor of Moscow's family, who sent at least $3.5 million to a company co-founded by Hunter Biden. Thanks to the Hunter Biden laptop, we know that the Russian oligarch behind that $3.5 million may have invested upwards of $200 million in other Biden-linked entities, and that Joe Biden personally benefited from his son's business dealings. And if you want to know how our public servants become billionaires or something close, this is exactly how they sell their office to foreign adversaries while continuing to collect a salary from American taxpayers. And this is all before Biden was named Obama's point man in Ukraine. As mentioned, the Clinton Foundation got the $145 million in donations from Uranium One investors. On top of that, the Clintons got $500,000 in the form of a speaking fee from a Kremlin-backed bank for Bill Clinton's 2010 speech in Moscow. They also got Skolkovo-linked donations from now-sanctioned Russian oligarch Viktor Vexelberg, directly and indirectly from his varied interests. With the reset and shambles, the Obama-Biden-Clinton players pivoted to Ukraine. In 2014, the U.S. helped overthrow the pro-Russian Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych and installed a more Western-friendly regime. And it's always good to point that out. It's very hard for them to paint Ukraine as a free and fair and legitimate democracy when they overthrew the government eight years ago by force. Biden's willing to help to midwife this thing, said Obama State Department official Victoria Newland on a leaked call with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. She was talking about installing a pro-European Union, pro-NATO Ukrainian named Arseniy Yatsenyuk as prime minister of Ukraine. The toppling of the Yanukovych government turned Ukraine into a feeding frenzy for opportunists. Billions of dollars in taxpayer-funded foreign aid began to flow to Ukraine. This gave Biden, Obama's point man in Ukraine, substantial leverage to extract such concessions as the immediate termination of the Ukrainian prosecutor investigating Burisma, the corrupt Ukrainian gas company that just so happened to have hired Hunter Biden. The vice president's son had no experience in oil and gas, and he had no experience in Ukraine, but he clearly held access to the Obama-Biden White House, as the emails on his now infamous laptop make clear. Many other Democrats and some Republicans scored business or benefits in Russia and Ukraine. George Soros, John and Tony Podesta, a key donor to Representative Adam Schiff, Obama's White House counsel, Greg Craig, Paul Manafort, and even the former MI6 agent and Clinton researcher, Christopher Steele. So are all of these corrupt individuals really concerned with saving Ukrainian lives? Give me a break. But Clinton, the Democrats and the global communists have even more reason to panic. 
This is from Reuters this morning. Donald Trump sues Hillary Clinton and others over Russian collusion allegations. Donald Trump on Thursday sued his rival in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Hillary Clinton, and several other Democrats alleging that they tried to rig that election by tying his campaign to Russia. The lawsuit covers a long list of grievances. The Republican former president repeatedly aired during his four years in the White House after beating Clinton and comes as he continues to falsely claim that his 2020 election defeat by Democrat President Joe Biden was the result of widespread fraud. Well, that's not a false claim. That is a true claim. Even the rhino speaker of Wisconsin's House has admitted that there was widespread fraud in Wisconsin's 2020 election. And it's true all around the country. Acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty. The former president alleged in a 108-page lawsuit filed in a federal court in Florida. The suit alleges racketeering and a conspiracy to commit injurious falsehood, among other claims. A Clinton representative did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The suit seeks compensatory and punitive damages. Trump said he was forced to incur expenses in an amount to be determined at trial, but known to be in excess of $24 million and continuing to accrue in the form of defense costs, legal fees and related expenses. The defendants in Trump's lawsuit include Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence officer. A dossier written by Steele, which was circulated to the FBI and media outlets before the November 2016 election, set out unproven assertions that Russia had embarrassing information about Trump and some of his campaign advisors, and that Moscow was working behind the scenes to defeat Clinton. It's strange that they don't mention in this article that Hillary Clinton paid for that false dossier. A 966-page report issued by a Republican-led U.S. Senate committee in 2020 concluded that Russia used Republican political operative Paul Manafort and the WikiLeaks website to try to help Trump win the 2016 election. And I think it probably said more than that. But of course, Reuters, global communist propaganda. Manafort worked on Trump's presidential campaign for five months in 2016. Russia's alleged election interference, which Moscow denies, sparked a two-year-long U.S. investigation headed by special counsel Robert Mueller. In 2019, Mueller released an exhaustive report that detailed numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, but did not charge any Trump associate with a criminal conspiracy. A more accurate way of saying that would be that the Mueller investigation was launched to try to give credence to the Russia-Trump collusion hoax and cover up various aspects involved in creating the hoax in the first place. And not only did it not charge Trump with a conspiracy, it also does not substantiate the idea that there was one. Mueller said in his report that, quote, the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts. And that's the end of the article. But the assumption there is, by the way, that Russia had something to do with WikiLeaks. And that's just not true. It actually doesn't matter how many times they try to pin the DNC hack on Russia. And I would imagine in the coming days or weeks or months, probably not years, we will hear more about this and we'll hear exactly what happened to Seth Rich. Now, I've been meaning to get to this story all week because stuff like this consistently gets overlooked. And it is actually extremely important when you're trying to understand what's going on in the world right now in the battle between sovereign nations and the global communists as they usher in their one world order that they freely admit. Okay. Again, not a conspiracy. They talk about it all the time. And if you've listened to the show for a while, you'll know that one of my favorite subjects 
in this picture is what has happened in Myanmar. And there was some news on that this week. And I'm going to use an article from Human Rights Watch so that you can get the most globalist, communist possible explanation for what's going on here and then relate that to what you already know about what's taking place in Myanmar, what has taken place in Burkina Faso, what took place in our election and what took place in the other color revolutions around the world that have been driven by George Soros for the benefit of the one world global communist agenda. So Human Rights Watch headline. U.S. recognizes genocide against Rohingya. The United States government has formally determined that the Myanmar military committed the crime of genocide and crimes against humanity against ethnic Rohingya Muslims in the Rakhine state, Human Rights Watch said today. The U.S. government should coordinate long overdue action with other countries to pursue justice for both mass crimes committed against the Rohingya and for those committed against other ethnic minorities and pro-democracy protesters since the military coup of February 2021. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in a speech at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., on March 21st, 2022, announced, I have determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity against Rohingya. The U.S. became party to the Genocide Convention in 1988. And I haven't dug into this completely, the Genocide Convention, but the CIA's Wikipedia website says the convention defines genocide as an intentional effort to completely or partially destroy a group based on its nationality ethnicity, race, or religion. It recognizes several acts as constituting genocide, such as imposing birth control and forcibly transferring children, and further criminalizes complicity, attempt, or incitement of its commission. Member states are prohibited from engaging in genocide and obligated to enforce this prohibition. All perpetrators are to be tried regardless of whether they are private individuals, public officials, or political leaders with sovereign immunity. Now, interestingly, this is not the first time that Myanmar has been accused of genocide against the Rohingya. Myanmar has been accused of genocide against its Rohingya community in northern Rakhine state after around 800,000 Rohingya fled at gunpoint to neighboring Bangladesh in 2016 and 2017, while their home villages were systematically burned. Man, that was while Obama was president. <laughs> That's weird. But we better say they did genocide again, because something has to be done about this military coup where they deposed Su Kyi, who had been elected in a fraudulent election, much like the one we had here. Can't just can't just allow that to stand if you're the the fake administration who won the same way here. The U.S. government should couple its condemnations of Myanmar's military with action, said John Sifton, Asia Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. For too long, the U.S. and other countries have allowed Myanmar's generals to commit atrocities with few real consequences. And that's probably not propaganda at all. The same military leaders responsible for crimes against the Rohingya carried out the February 1st, 2021 coup against the country's elected civilian government. The junta then systematically attacked those who protested against the coup, subjecting them to mass killings, torture and arbitrary detention, amounting to crimes against humanity. Escalating attacks on other ethnic minority groups have resulted in additional abuses and atrocities, including war crimes. It's strange that the Human Rights Watch isn't taking the same position on the peaceful protesters who were at the Capitol in our country on January 6, 2021. It's also strange that they don't note that those protesters against the coup in Myanmar were sponsored by George Soros just the way that Black Lives Matter Antifa is sponsored here. Since the coup, security forces have killed at least 1,600 people and detained more than 12,000. Over 500,000 people have been internally displaced, and the junta is deliberately blocking aid to populations in need as a form of collective punishment. 
Rohingya remaining in the country have faced even greater movement restrictions and harsher treatment, abuses that amount to the crimes against humanity of persecution, apartheid, and severe deprivation of liberty. <laughs> well, that's happening to us too, Human Rights Watch. What do you think all that censorship is? What do you think limiting people's ability to spend in certain places is? That's happening. Does that matter, Human Rights Watch? What about the whole thing where we're told we're going to lose our careers if we don't inject ourselves with an experimental gene therapy that has a better chance of killing or maiming or sterilizing us than the disease it's meant to prevent? What about that? The U.S. and other governments should seek justice for the military's crimes against the Rohingya as well as abuses against protesters and ethnic groups and impose stronger economic measures against the military leadership, Human Rights Watch said. The United Nations Security Council, largely because of concerns of a Chinese or Russian veto, has not taken substantive action in response to the Myanmar military's atrocities. The U.S. should nevertheless press for a council resolution that would refer the situation in Myanmar to the International Criminal Court. At the same time, the U.S. should press for council action to impose an arms embargo on the Myanmar military. Man, that's strange. The U.S. and their allied nations don't have enough leverage to combat a genocide, as they call it, in Myanmar because of Russia and China. Huh. Man, where can they prevent these huge problems we're being told about? The ICC prosecutor is presently investigating crimes against humanity related to the forced deportation in 2017 of more than 740,000 Rohingya into Bangladesh, an ICC member state. Well, that's interesting. I wonder what will happen if the U.S. gets set back on the right course, if the election is overturned, if Donald Trump is back in office and we actually are focused on an America first agenda. I wonder what will happen if we start deporting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of illegal immigrants who have been pushed into our country by these very same forces that the Myanmar military was overthrowing in Myanmar. That'll be interesting. Are they going to call that a crime against humanity as well? Isn't the crime against humanity actually the slave trade that is involved in bringing all these millions of illegal immigrants into the United States? Is it too hard to imagine that that happens in other countries? It does. We know it does. Myanmar is not a member of the Rome Statute, the court's founding treaty, so only the UN Security Council can refer all grave international crimes in Myanmar to the ICC for investigation. An ICC referral remains critical to address the full scope of criminality within Myanmar, including for alleged genocidal acts. Oh, they're just alleged now. An ICC referral would also give the court jurisdiction to address other alleged abuses, including by ethnic armed groups in Myanmar. What is what does it mean to be ethnically armed? If the Security Council fails to act, the U.S. should assemble a group of like minded countries in the General Assembly to pass a resolution calling on countries to impose bilateral arms embargoes on Myanmar and urging them to use their domestic legal systems wherever possible to investigate alleged crimes by Myanmar military personnel. You got that? So we have to, we can't attack them, you see, and we can't take them to the International Criminal Court because they're not part of that. So we need the UN Security Council to do it. But the U.N. Security Council can't do it because of Russia and China. So really, we're just going to call all of this a genocide and hope that everybody believes us so that we can go in and get rid of the military that deposed the fraudulently elected president. This is what this is all about. And the article goes on with ever more specific suggestions about exactly what should be done there. And it really is incredible how much the global communist agenda is reflected in all of these various countries across the world. Evil twin, good twin. It's equally interesting to see how the good twin responds in trying to eliminate the evil twin and all of the corrupt and criminal things the evil twin has done in all of these countries. And now speaking of the evil twin and to end the episode on a very, very high note, let's hear member of German Parliament, Christine Anderson, 
dressed down Justin Trudeau to his face in Brussels. Based on Article 195, doubt that it would have been more appropriate for Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, to address this House according to Article 144, an article which was specifically designed to debate violations of human rights, democracy, and the rule of law, which is clearly the case with Mr. Trudeau. Then again, a prime minister who openly admires the Chinese basic dictatorship who tramples on fundamental rights by persecuting and criminalizing his own citizens as terrorists just because they dared to stand up to his perverted concept of democracy should not be allowed to speak in this house at all. Mr. Trudeau, you are a disgrace for any democracy. Please spare us your presence. Thank you. Now that is just beautiful. And you've got to love the clapping at the end. Maybe you can see why the global communists are panicking so hard. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!